Do you know where April Fool's Day came from? There was a debate in time past, Middle Ages, as to when the new year should begin. I actually think April 1st makes good sense. It's the beginning of planting season. It's the kind of, you kind of see the natural cycle. It's a beginning. But uh, people who advocated this became known as April Fools. January 1st won out. I wonder if it's because they have better propaganda. I, I don't know. I'm not sure what all happened. But what I do know is that New Year's Day for us is two days away, and we will be starting a new year. New Year's are, of course, artificial. There's no uh, hard and fast reason why they should begin when they do in a lot of places. They'll have two of them. There'll be like a a liturgical and a secular or a solar and a lunar. But I think people like New Year's Day because it provides us a a, a fresh start, a a chance to begin over again. Even if it isn't physically necessary, I think psychologically, as we go through the cycles of life, it's good to have those markers, to wipe the slate clean, to make course corrections, to do better. It's a time for us to to take stock of our lives, to assess what we've done in the past year and what we're going to do better in the next year. We look at our shortcomings and try to mend them. We look at our strengths and try to accentuate them. This is a chance for us to consider what our lives are built on and where they are going. What are the contours of your life? As you're thinking about it, many of you are probably spending time right now kind of reviewing these things, thinking through, where have I been? Where am I going? Who am I? Because your identity is going to affect where you're going, does it not? How you think about yourself. What is your life building to? And spoiler alert, all those new gym memberships that people take out six, eight weeks in, yeah. What are you going to do when you fail? I don't mean to be a downer, but all of us make New Year's resolutions, decide we're going to do something, and maybe we don't quite live up to it. My hope this morning is that this passage, Psalm 110, will help us correctly calibrate our lives, to think about those things that are foundational, that do not change, to to think about our identity in these things, and also to think about how to deal with failure and and what to do with it. Well, you've just heard the passage read, but go ahead and look back at it. Psalm 110, it begins by saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. First thing you see here is the establishment of the Lord. God is speaking and saying, I am establishing this one. The imagery here is of a, it's a messianic psalm. That's what's happening here. He's speaking to a Messiah, this this coming deliverer of Israel. And it pictures him like either at a day of an enthronement or or I think he's, he's gathering his army. Okay, it's going to talk about as the day of his 
power, okay? The hosts of the Lord are assembling. The hosts are gathering. This is the day when the Lord is putting his people together. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, um, Dan Diffie preached from Micah chapter 5, and you have very similar imagery there of the king, the Lord of the hosts, assembling his army for battle. Very similar imagery here, same idea. This is a time of confrontation. This is not a time of peace. This is a time of decision and a time of where do your loyalties lie? That's what's being decided. And in this, at this time, God himself speaks down and he makes an oath. He, makes a, he swears a promise and he says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. This oath is guaranteed since Yahweh himself is making it. Remember what Kevin just read to us in the opening scripture there. It is impossible for God to lie. When God says something, he is committing himself to carrying it out, to making sure it happens, to fulfilling his word. And so it is here that it is impossible that this will not happen. This is certain. The enemies of the Messiah will become his footstool. They will be humiliated before him. They will be conquered and they will be ruled over by him. This idea of making your enemies a footstool is, is an allusion to what kings used to do. When they would win a battle, they would take their enemies and make them bow down on the ground. They'd sit on a throne and put their feet on them, specifically on their necks, illustrating complete control. You can see this in Joshua chapter uh, 10, verses 22 to 27. And there you have Joshua who's completed the conquest of the southern part. There was a, a coalition of five kings comes up against him. He defeats them. The kings are captured. After the army is broken, the five kings are brought out. And Joshua has the men of Israel put their feet on the necks of these defeated kings. They are then killed and hung on trees until nightfall and thrown into a cave and buried. It was a representation of complete victory. Their power had been shattered in the face of Joshua. Joshua delivered the people from the power of these enemies, broke their armies, and literally had them put their feet on those kings' necks. Similarly, at the end of this chapter in verse 7, he will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. It's poetic, it's a bit perhaps a bit unclear at first reading, but the idea here is of a victorious king who is pursuing his enemies. And this is the idea at the end of the battle. If you wore out, one of the ways that you could defeat your enemy on the battlefield, but if he could retreat and regroup and gather his strength, you had to face him again. Well, this is the idea at the end of the battle, when everything is, is exhausted, when everyone's tired, he's refreshed. This Messiah is pursuing his enemies to the end. He is not worn out in the least. His victory has not taken a toll on him that causes him to be exhausted. No, this, this king, this warrior king is pursuing his enemies to the end, and he will set his feet upon them. These are symbols of the completeness 
of this king's victories. And this is what God himself is swearing he will do. This is what is going to happen. So what are the implications of this? If you would, flip open in your Bible. Jesus himself draws attention to this. Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22. The context here in Matthew 22 is that Jesus has recently come into the city of Jerusalem, and it's been the triumphal entry. Everyone hails him, says, you know, Hosanna in the highest. It's the son of David entering into the city of David. He is the king, and the crowds have hailed him. And Jesus comes into his temple, and then he begins teaching his people, and everyone loves him. Of course not, right? You know where it's going. The scribes and the Pharisees hate him. And so they begin setting traps for him. They begin asking him questions to try to make a fool of him, and he begins answering all of their questions. Uh, He begins to to unravel their riddles. And then Jesus turns the tables, and that's what we're looking at here. Matthew chapter 22, verse 41. Jesus has kind of gotten tired of this. He's like, enough. I've You've seen the point. And so he turns around and he says, Now while the Pharisees were gathering together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Okay, that's the coming Messiah. Whose son is he? And they said, The son of David. And he said to them, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, this is God speaking, in the Holy Spirit, David calls him Lord. And then he quotes Psalm 110.1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. The speaker here is pretty easy, easy to see. Here's, here's what Christ is getting at. He says, the Lord, okay, and, you, and if you see in Psalm 110, it's all in capital letters. So there's your, your dead giveaway. That, that shows you that's the divine name, that's Yahweh. So Yahweh is saying to my, look, my, that's a possessive, so who is the speaker? The speaker is David, okay? That's, and the Pharisees and Jesus agreed on that. This is David speaking. So Yahweh says to David's Lord, my Lord, therein lay the question. If this Messiah, this coming deliverer, is to be the son of David, how is David calling this one Lord? Okay, I don't think that Scott Schneider is ever going to call Kevin Lord. It's not going to happen, right? Why not? No parent calls their child my Lord, right? Does not happen. So if David, the greatest Jew that ever lived, the king who who sat in Jerusalem, who established the empire, who was the, the recipient of the Davidic covenant, whom God says, you are my son. If he calls this one Lord, what does that tell you about this one? 
He's human, but he's not merely human. And Jesus doesn't spell it all out for them. He doesn't try to go through and unravel what all of this means. He just puts the text in front of the Pharisees' noses and says, answer this. Grapple with this. What does it mean? Give me an answer. And what do they do? They go silent. They don't want to answer because they recognize that if they answer the question, it brings an obligation. That if they acknowledge that this one is Lord and the people have just proclaimed that Jesus is that son of David, what are they going to have to be convinced? They don't want to go down that road. They don't even want to open the door to that hallway and think about where that route goes. They want to just close that door and keep right on moving. How about you this morning? If you've come here this morning thinking of Jesus as a good man or a prophet, maybe a, a wise philosopher or, or a teacher of morality, Understanding that is not going to rock your world. It's not going to force you to make changes. It isn't going to rearrange your life. Rather, you can take an assessment of him and figure out, you know, what what marginal changes you need to make. But if he is the divine son of God, if he is the Lord who has been appointed by the omnipotent creator of the universe, well, that's going to have implications. You can't just walk away from that unchanged. That demands something of us. You don't just shrug and go on with life. Friends, this defines our place in the world. If God has made this one Lord and King and announced that all will bow to him, if you don't do that, it makes you a rebel and an enemy. There's no middle ground. And that is the point that Jesus was putting to the Pharisees. And that is the point that confronts us this morning. And I would ask you, as you go into 2019, not to be like the Pharisees who didn't want to answer the question. Who is the Lord? And perhaps more pointedly, is he your Lord? But Lord's rule... Next thing I want you to notice is this rule of the Lord. He he doesn't just rule in, in a hypothetical sense. No, this Lord is going to rule, and he's going to rule absolutely. He doesn't rule like a democracy. It isn't a consensus that we give him authority to rule. He rules. It says in verse 2, the Lord sends forth from Zion, your mighty scepter rule in the midst of your enemies. Now, I think most people know what a scepter is. You think of it as, you know, gold and maybe a jewel on the end, and it's kind of a short stick and whatnot. But we don't really remember most of the time what it means. Okay? If, if you are familiar with Egyptian temples and iconography and things, one of the most common images you see over and over and over again is a giant pharaoh reaching down and grasping the hair of an enemy, and he holds up a stick with a ball on the end. That's called a mace. And you see it frozen in this point. But what's going to happen next is he's going to brain them. Okay, that's the imagery. That's the war club that was used to execute 
captive prisoners. It was a sign of authority. And that symbol, that war club, that mace that was used to demonstrate authority and power over a vanquished foe, that became stylized and turned into the scepter. And so what it represented was that authority. If you're more familiar with Roman images, and in fact, I think it's on our money, you'll have what's called a fasces, a bundle of sticks with an axe in the middle. Well, the axe can cut the sticks, right? Sticks don't cut the axe. The one that has authority to execute, that's what it represents. This one holds the scepter, not among those who simply support him, not just simply among those who who acknowledge and like him. He holds it over his enemies, to those who oppose him. And the Lord himself has promised that this one will rule. In the book of Revelations, numerous times, John the Revelator points out that Christ rules with a rod of iron. And in the book of Daniel, you see the uncut stone falling and crushing the other kingdoms of the world, and a new kingdom is built on that uncut stone, the one that no human had anything to do with fashioning. This authority comes from heaven above. It is unquestioned. It is absolute. Now, the idea of absolute authority is to us alien and perhaps a bit scary. We all know the phrase, absolute authority corrupts absolutely, right? But not for this one, because this one is the Son of God. This one is the Lord who is righteous, And when the righteous one holds absolute authority, it is not tyrannical. It is not oppressive. Righteousness without any power is tragic. The failed noble cause, trying to do what was right, but incapable of following it out. Or the other side would be to have lots of power in the service of selfishness. Either one is ugly. We've seen both. But when you put them together, what you have is a righteous rule and one who is able to affect righteous judgments. And so it is that he will bring judgment among the nations. He will finally and and completely execute judgment on the day of his power. He is not going to be weak. It's easy to forget when we live in a world where justice is usually partial, uh, incomplete, slips away. We may see justice for a time, but soon it, injustice seems to constantly be creeping back. Corruption is always a threat. Incompetence. We forget that God has promised a kingdom where none of that will endure. That fundamentally the fabric of the universe is going to be justice. We live in a state of injustice, but we need to remember that there is a coming state of justice. That that is the world that we will inhabit someday. That all that is unrighteous will be judged and put away. And that brings us to our third point, and that is the people of the Lord. 
Kings don't just rule over nothing. They don't just rule on paper. They rule people. They have a people. They have subjects. They have those who serve them. And the Lord's people here are described as willing. Your people offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. They are willing. They are offering themselves freely. This is not compulsion. Rather, these are new wills. God doesn't have mercenaries. There's no draft in his army. You aren't going to be forced into serving in his army. That's not how he works. The Lord's army, the Lord's soldiers, those who are with him are willing, and they offer themselves freely. This is the idea here of a a free will offering. There were certain offerings that you had to come and make if you were living in Israel. But but many times, in fact, most of the offerings that people brought were free will offerings. They didn't have to do it. They brought it and they made their offerings because they wanted to, because they loved this God, because they were loyal to him. And so the idea here is consecration. Offer yourselves as living sacrifices. These people who are choosing to follow after this Lord are doing so willfully because they desire to. And you notice, too, that they are holy on the day of your power in holy garments. Throughout the scriptures, you often see the the imagery of wearing white-washed robes, right? The priests would wear white linen garments. And you have Jesus in parables talking about putting on the white garb for a wedding feast, or it's a repeated theme through scripture. It's the idea of holiness, putting away all that which is dirty and impure and sinful and clothing oneself in righteousness. And this is the idea that those who are following after this king are willingly following after holiness. They want righteousness. This is a king of righteousness, and so they follow after righteousness because they are his. And the imagery here in verse 3 is, is a bit unclear because it's poetic, and you know how poems work. Uh, they, they are more impressionistic. What strikes me is how similar this, this is to David's final words in 2 Samuel 23. And there, David, at the end of his life, as he's about to die, he describes the good ruler, and he says, The good ruler is like the sun rising on a cloudless dawn over a land that has been gently washed by a rain. And here it's dew. We have this idea of of fresh, clean, new sunshine coming down on a a well-watered place. And it's a place of fruitfulness and prosperity, a place where things grow, a place where things flourish. And so you have this imagery here of being born anew at the dawn, of coming out clean and washed and shiny and bright. And this describes this Lord and his people. They are going forth to battle, ready, prepared, holy. But in contrast, there are the enemies. The Lord is at your right hand, and he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. 
Who are these kings? These are the kings that did not follow after the Messiah. Psalm 2 says, they have gathered themselves together and set themselves against the Lord's anointed. They have gathered together and they want to make war. They won't have his kingdom. They have said, no, you cannot rule over us. We will not be mastered by you. We will rule ourselves. And on the day of the Lord's power, they were not willing. They have willed to oppose him. And they wish to maintain their own kingdoms, to maintain their own standards. And it's the same thing for us. We have to make a choice. Are we going to try to build our own kingdoms, or are we going to willfully follow after Christ's kingdom? Following God and his anointed Lord means following after righteousness. It means that you pursue holiness and make war upon the enemy of the Lord, namely sin. I recently did a membership interview with Mike Terrell, and he said when he was about the eighth grade, he, he was thinking through this religious stuff, and he said to his mom one day, he came to her, he said, I'm glad that we're not all extreme about religion, you know, we're pretty moderate, we're not like those, you know, Jesus freaks. His mom looked at him and said, oh, yes, we are. <laughs> oh, yes, we are, Jesus. No, we are extreme. We are following it. And that rocked him back. Like, Wait a minute, what do you mean? No, there is no compromise, his mother was telling him. And that forced him to stop and think through. Where do my loyalties lie? Am I really sold out for this or not? His mom was not allowing for middle ground. She was exactly right. You see, Jesus did not come. This, this Lord did not come to make polite Christians. Polite Christians aren't willing to go to war. They just want to be left in peace. And Jesus didn't die so that we could be polite, socially acceptable Christians. Jesus Christ came to make a bloody war. And he set the example by he himself being nailed to a block of wood and shedding his own blood. This is not pacifistic. There is a violence that underlies this imagery. And so I ask you, are you willing to follow if it means that you're going to be in conflict? Following this king does not mean ease and social acceptability. It's going to cause conflict. It's going to bring hardship. I have two sons, and I want to appeal to the rest of you as parents who have them. Parents, there is a war on for our children's souls. We need to fight it. We need to teach them that this world is not our home. Teach them that we're going to have to flee this world the same way that Lot had to flee Sodom. To stay in it is to bring destruction, to bring that shattering judgment of this Lord. There is coming a day when the kingdom of this world will be shattered. And friends, our kids are not born Christians. 
None of us are born Christians. None of us are just naturally following this king of our own free will. We won't do that. No, there has to be a change. We need to teach our children, just like Mike's mom did, that we need to be complete followers, willful followers of Jesus Christ, not polite, socially acceptable compromisers. Everyone is going to submit to this King Jesus. Some will submit happily, joyfully, and others under the rod of iron. How will you bow? Will you bow with thanksgiving or you bow with resentment? Either way, every knee will bow. But what that bowing looks like is very different. And if you're not sure where you stand on this question, let me ask, give you a couple of diagnostic questions. How does your heart respond to the commands of Jesus Christ when he says, Be ye holy, even as I am holy? Pursue holiness without which no man will see the Lord. Does your heart say yes? Or does that sound terrible? Do you want to love other people better? Do, do, do you have a desire to see the good for others, to see them flourish, to see them blessed, to see goodness? In the, or is that not really your heart's desire? Are you struggling for sexual purity, or are you comfortable to remain in sexual sin? When the offering plate is passed around, is that painful to give? Or are you willing? Perhaps you think I'm being a bit harsh here. There's all this idea of the wrath to come and these sorts of things are, are a bit harsh. I, it is not. Jesus Christ spoke these ways. But let me give you a fourth reason, or a fourth truth about this Lord, and a good reason to own him as your Lord, and that is he is a sympathetic high priest. This Lord is not merely a warrior king, he is a high priest. And you see that in verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, many of you are probably thinking, Mel who? You're not alone, okay? Melchizedek is kind of a shadowy figure. He emerged all the way back in Genesis chapter 14 to greet Abram after he had won a great victory over King Kedoleomer of Mesopotamia, and Abraham meets this Melchizedek, and Abraham pays him tithes. King Melchizedek blesses Abram, and it says that Melchizedek was the king and priest over Salem, which is later going to be Jerusalem. And then there's silence until David writes this. Melchizedek isn't mentioned again. So I imagine when David wrote this, people were back there rolling through their Torah going, what? How do we... Where did this come from? You see, David is now ruling in the same space, in the same city, in the same location that Melchizedek had ruled. And here God comes down and he pronounces another oath that this son of God is going to be a great high priest. Now that presents, at first glance, uh, if you're familiar with, with Israelite 
religion, that, that presents a bit of a challenge because kings were specifically forbidden from being priests, right? That's part of the reason that Saul lost his, his kingship. It's because he tried to act like a priest. So is God just making up rules here on the fly? No. What was prohibited in Israel, there was a Levitical priesthood. And the king was pro- prohibited from anything that was part of that Levitical priesthood. He was not to be offering sacrifice. That was the Aaronic and the Levite priesthood. This is a different priesthood. This is the priesthood of Melchizedek, who is, by the way, a Gentile, interestingly enough. The Melchizedekian priesthood is different. It was not tied to the sacrificial system of Israel. And so it is that this king can do what no other king in Israel could do. He could be a king and a priest. He wields the sword in one hand to execute judgment and justice, but in the other hand, he can be an intermediary and a peacemaker between God and a people estranged from him. He is a relational healer. That's what a priest is. And in this role, he won't cease. A Levitical priest became a priest at 30 and they retired at 50. Melchizedek says nothing of. He was a priest, period. Priests were a go-between. Now, I do not stand here before you as a priest. Sometimes people will call me that. I'm always like, no, I'm not a priest, right? That's not what the role of a pastor or a preacher is. No, a priest is someone who is a relational go-between, who can bridge a gap between two estranged parties. And this is, he's going to be appointed by the greater party, in this case, God. And so he has access both to his fellow man and to God. He is able to go between them and to make satisfaction. There are two things that happen here. One is when there is a breakdown in the relationship, when there is the wrath of God, when there has been an offense, he is able to go and bring about healing and put these two estranged parties back together. The other thing that a priest does is bring a blessing. A priest would be able to to bring the blessing of the Lord and pronounce the blessing and an assurance of pardon and an assurance of forgiveness. And so it is that this coming Lord is a priest. He is able to do these functions. He is able to make atonement for sin, and he is able to bring about a blessing for his people. Rob Buss is the benevolence deacon, and we've been reading through some different books, been thinking through uh, poverty, what causes it. One of the most interesting things I've been thinking about recently is we tend to think of poverty as a lack of material things. You know, I need rent. Is this or that, or there's these lack. No, poverty stems from a relational deficiency. Fundamentally, it's our relational deficiency with God himself. But secondarily, when we rebelled against God, we find ourselves alienated from the world. The, the ground brings th- forth thorns and thistles. It's no longer fruitful. We're no longer able to, to get our money the way it would have been very comfortable and easy to do in the garden. There was no lack. Now we find a lack where we don't relate to creation well. We don't relate to other people well. There are problems that develop. It's not an accident that, that divorce is one of the key causes of poverty because there are relational breaks that happen, and these cause suffering. We find these breaks with ourselves. 
the very things that we want to do, we find ourselves not doing. In all of these areas, we find relational struggles and problems, and it manifests itself in poverty. And so it is that this one coming Lord is able to heal those relational breaks. He is the great healer, the great high priest. Priests come and they offer a sacrifice and they make atonement. Well, this high priest we see in Hebrews comes and he makes an offering of himself. He brings his own blood to the Father. He he, he doesn't just hold us at arm's length. He went and bled and shed his own blood and broke his own body on the cross for our sins to make atonement between us and God. He was the great warrior that brought an end to sin. Friends, you and I this year cannot put an end to our sin. If you have determined, I'm going to overcome sin, friend, you're going to fail. It's not going to happen. We are not strong enough to do that. Now, our part is to be willing to follow after this king, and this king is the one who will put our sin to death. And so it is that he bore on his body our failures, our shame, embarrassment. We don't want others to know. He bore that in his own body on the tree to make reconciliation. That's what this great high priest can do. Friend, don't you want a priest like that? Don't you want a priest who is that comprehensive, complete, satisfying. A priest that doesn't just look at you as you are, but can make you into what you should be. That is the ministry of this priest. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He will accept you and plead on your behalf to the Father if you will come to him. And so I exhort you today, own this one as your king and your priest. He is the Son of God. He is the mighty warrior who will reign, and he will be your sympathetic high priest. I'm certain that 2019 is going to hold many challenges, and I'm going to fail. You probably will as well. And I'm going to need a sympathetic high priest that can deal with those failures and put them away. Friends, we need to know what our foundation is. This is where we started, right? We we need to know the foundational truths. The foundational truth is this. God the Father has sworn an oath to God the Son. You will rule over your enemies. You will be a priest on my behalf. That's the foundational truths. That's more certain than that the sun is going to come up tomorrow. That's what cannot be shaken. Friends, we need to know that assurance that this king sovereignly rules and that nothing will shake his power. And friends, that's where we find our identity. You don't have to go out and try and make yourself a better person this year. No, our identity, what makes us, what gives us value and what makes us of importance is that we are following after this king, that we are his 
willing people, that we are pursuing holiness, that we love what he loves, that we hate what he hates, that we are his. We derive our significance from him. Outside of him, you're building sandcastles. And when we fail, we need a conquering hero that can overcome our sin, that can be merciful and gentle to forgive us and to restore us to God. This is our hope in the year ahead. And my prayer is that God will bless you richly in 2019. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the oath that you have sworn to your son. We thank you that your word never changes. That it is impossible for you to lie. And so, God, we rest our hope in you. We do not rest our hope in ourselves. For, God, we know our own hearts are fickle and changing. And that what we believe today, we may not believe next week. God, we pray that you would anchor us to these truths, that you would save us from ourselves, that you would save us from sin, that you would save us from the enemy who seeks as a roaring lion to devour us. God, we look to you and to your warrior king for salvation. And so, God, it's in Christ's name that we pray and we ask for these things. Amen.